Um, now, Belinda uh, is starting this morning officially in her role as uh, our associate minister here. And uh, as she comes to preach, I thought I might just ask you a couple of questions. We haven't really planned this, but here's a question. Um, tell us a little bit about your family. Um, I am married to John. He's just down there. And we've been married for 25 years, and we have five children and one son-in-law, and um, two of the children are here today. All the rest of them are coming back from Thailand and should be landing sometime around about now. Uh, and we have two Labradoodles and five chickens. Wow. That's amazing. The Labradoodles, great taste in dogs, um, and hopefully the chickens are tasty as well. Um, the dogs think so. <laughs> Stress chickens chased around the backyard. So what have you been doing in terms of ministry for the last little while, Belinda? Over the last year, I was um, working for Anglicare, setting up a new um, program, um, which was to provide support and housing for families in transition. So um, primarily families escaping domestic violence and refugee families. And that program, it's called SHIFT. It provides um, pathways for churches to connect with those families and help them. And before that, I spent 10 years working in Bobbinhead Anglican Church as the ministry worker there. Um, and I really loved that. Um, and, yeah, that's long enough back in the past. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's good. Well, we are delighted that you're here. It's very, very exciting. We're glad that John is part of that and two of the kids. The rest are all, of course, coming back at 5 o'clock, aren't they, to the evening service to hear you then, I'm sure, straight off the plane from Thailand to church. I'm going to pray for Belinda on your behalf as she uh, comes to bring God's word to us. Lord God, thank you so very, very much for Belinda. Thank you that you love her greatly. Thank you that your hand is on her life. Thank you for her heart to serve others uh, at Anglicare, at Bobbinhead Anglican. Thank you for the years of experience she's had in building your body, in serving your people, in reaching out to folk in need and bringing the gospel to this city. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that as she formally starts her paid ministry here on our staff, that your hand will be on her. You will fill her with your Holy Spirit. You will work in her and through her. And that the ministry she does here will bear fruit for all eternity. Lord Jesus, that this church will be packed uh, with people who are coming to hear the wonderful news of Jesus. And that Belinda will have the joy of uh, gathering around your throne one day and, and having people come up to her and go, Hey, Belinda, I'm here because of your faithfulness, because you love people, you serve people, you, told, you introduced people to Jesus. So, Lord, just use her, I pray, uh, and help us now to be really great listeners and learners as she teaches us. Amen. And thank you all for your welcome. Um, I was saying to someone on Wednesday, so a couple of days into the job, I feel like I belong here already. So that's no small thing. Um, so thank you. Um, did you know that there are 13,000 churches in Australia? And so if you're new here this morning, if this is your first time here, thank you for choosing Darling Street out of all those churches. You could have chosen another one, but you didn't, so we're honoured to have you. Um, for those of you who have been here longer than that, then thank you for having me, because this is my first official Sunday. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for the great gift that you have given us of your word, of Jesus, of the word written in the Bible, a word that is living and active and powerful to change lives. We pray that uh, right now you would speak, you'd speak into our hearts, you would remove distractions, that people, um, every person here would see past me and only see you. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you noticed uh, that our society is um, quite fascinated with transformation? So if you have a look at reality shows, um, one of my favourites, I do confess, I feel like I belong, so I'm among friends, I'm safe, uh, is The Biggest Loser. And Biggest Loser is about losing weight and, um, and personal transformation. Uh, another one, The Block. It's all about renovating a house, transforming um, apartments. People like Michelle Bridges are minor celebrities. Why? Because they tell us how to transform ourselves, how to change ourselves outwardly and inwardly. And I get this. I'm right there along with the rest of society. I bumped into a friend the other day. I haven't seen her for a while. Um, I was going out of the door in the toilets at Westfield and she was coming in and we bumped into each other and she looked completely different from the last time I'd seen her. She'd lost heaps of weight, her skin was clear, she was, she was really glowing, she looked amazing. And um, as we started chatting, I, I really um, got the feeling that her personality had actually changed too. She was um, much more outgoing, more open, more relaxed. And um, this stayed with me. It really struck me. And I was thinking, I want that too. I was really compelled by that. What did she do? Uh, it was sugar, by the way. She gave up sugar. And um, so, if you want to know. Uh, and now, here's the thing. I know that the corporate desire for change is, um, it has a downside. So looking good or having a new house is not going to deliver fulfilment, is it? I know that. But I do wonder if this um, is an expression of something within us that yearns for the divine, something that instinctively leans towards what we know deep down can deliver what is better than what we have and what we are. I think something deep is at play here. We long for transformation because God is a God of transformation and we are made in his image. Well, who better to know about transformation than Peter? Now, who's Peter, I hear you ask? If you're not familiar with the Bible, the Peter I'm talking about is the guy who wrote the part of the Bible that Jan read out um, earlier. And it's a letter which is called creatively, one Peter. Now consider Peter. He was a fisherman, he was rough, he came from Galilee, which is sort of equivalent to Walgett, it's about as glamorous as Walgett, and um, no offence if you're from Walgett, um, you've got to love him, you've got to love him. He got so many things wrong, he'd frequently put his foot in it, he'd, he'd show off, he, he never quite got what was really going on and um, he didn't follow through. But he did have some moments of brilliance. He really loved Jesus. 
Now, Peter had belonged to Jesus' little group of friends and seen Jesus heal mental illness and physical illness and chronic disease and and seen him confront evil spirits and confront injustice and uh, speak in a way that was wise and smart and funny in a way that no one had ever been before. Peter was the one who first recognised that Jesus was God's promised answer to all his oppressed people's hopes and dreams. And um, what Peter and his friends experienced in Jesus was the presence of God himself, pushing back darkness, pushing back evil and bringing in light. And then Peter let Jesus down really badly and he had no chance to apologise before Jesus was murdered. Can you imagine Peter living with that shame, grief, pain, loss of all his hopes and dreams, knowing he'd betrayed the best friend he ever had, um, but then now Jesus was dead, his body was in a tomb. For three days he lived with that. And then resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead, alive forever. And what difference does that make? Well, actually, it makes every difference in the world, all the difference, not just for Peter, but for us too. Um, the, the English theologian N.T. Wright puts it like this. He says, Jesus' resurrection meant that the darkest and strongest power in the world, the power of death itself, had been defeated. If that was true, then a new power a different sort of power from all others had been unleashed into the world. The power of God himself unleashed. Unleashed for what? Transformation. From that resurrection day on, something new had begun. A a whole new way of being, a whole new way of living. From that day, everything changed, not just for Peter, but for every corner of the universe. Jesus' resurrection set in motion a plan to fix everything that's wrong, to heal lives and relationships and communities, to push back darkness and evil and everything that belongs to the darkness, to transform the whole way of things such that death is left in that tomb. No longer the ultimate end, but now a way through into abundant life forever. And that's why we baptise people. That's why baptism, it makes me cry every time, because it means so much. It represents not just washing away sin, but coming up from under the water, coming up from uh, the symbolic tomb into a new life a new way of relating to God and one another, a new way of being and doing community, a new way that embraces forgiveness and love and non-retaliation. Forget about religion. This, this new way is not about obeying a moral code or, or believing the right things or saying the right prayer so you can go to heaven when you die. This is about embracing Jesus now, and forever. 
and light and life and everything that goes with it. So when Peter wrote this letter back in the early 60s AD, not long after all of this happened, uh, to Christians who were scattered throughout Asia Minor, what was on his mind? Well, he didn't get it before, now he gets it. He is transformed. This letter overflows with praise for God. The bad stuff is still in the world, it's true, but his shame is gone, he's been forgiven. He has new hope, a new purpose, a hope of of, um, everything being perfectly and physically renewed after death and the purpose of being part of a movement that pushes back darkness before death. And this new order of things includes a new community, which we call the church. It's not a physical building, it's a gathering of people who are empowered by the Spirit of Jesus. Throwing your lot in with Jesus means that you are automatically part of this new community, whether you like it or not. That's part of the deal. Um, It's a spiritual reality, even if you never physically attend a church service. Now, here's a question, a non-rhetorical question. What metaphor would you use, just in one word, to describe the church? You can call out. Family? Body? Community? Team? Oh, say that again. Oh, temple. These are all very good um, biblical. Okay, so, so here's mine. It's, you won't find this in the Bible. My metaphor for the church is Aldi. You know Aldi, the Aldi supermarket? Have you ever shopped there? It's very eclectic. So if you go there, you might look on their sales table and find a chainsaw right next to a quadruple D bra. And there, next to that, we have some skin for a midget and next to them there's a laptop of a brand you've never heard of before and you'll never hear of again and then there might be some educational books and some Belgian chocolates and they're all very very cheap and they're all together on the table see just like the church like I'm the chainsaw actually no (laughs) and the cheap bit we'll leave that out we're an eclectic bunch aren't we we're all different Surprise, surprise, when a a bunch of very different people who for the most part care very much about why they're together, um, when they get together, it is a recipe for trouble. Here at Darling Street, we want to be a church uh, where the unchurched love to come. So if you're here for the first time, um, perhaps the first time you've ever been to church at all, then you need to know the whole story. Church can be messy. Sometimes there's conflict and misunderstanding. I assume that is church here and I assume that because that is church everywhere. That's the bad news. But the good news is that the good news is gooder than the bad news is bad. The good news is that conflict is normal, even in a church, and can sometimes even be a sign of health. Why? Because it means that we're engaging with one another deeply enough that we're actually bumping into each other's prickly bits. It's not comfortable. And we could, we could easily avoid that. That doesn't 
We don't have to go through that. We could avoid it by just turning up now and again, um, only talking about sport or the weather, keeping it light, never really getting to know one another. The problem is that's not church. That's going through a ritual. It's not being church. So that passive avoidance is, on the whole, not the way forward. Recognising that conflict is to be expected and still being actively involved is, with one another is the way forward. So we stop operating out of an agenda of self-protection and fear. We forgive. We wade into the mess and we roll up our sleeves and in doing so we find a new depth and richness of relationship. This is Jesus' way of transformation. Peter's metaphor for the church is a spiritual house with Jesus as the cornerstone. That is the main bit of the building that everything else depends on. Jesus is the most precious, central and vital part of the church. We belong to each other only through Jesus. We can't be church without him. But for those... um, who haven't got to know Jesus, who don't want to know Jesus, Jesus causes them to stumble. And isn't that true? Um, In my experience, I've found that other people are happy to talk about um, God or spirituality or prayer, but Jesus is off limits, a stumbling block. And the inevitable consequence of avoiding or ignoring Jesus is missing out on what Jesus offers. And Peter also says, but you, that is you Christian believers, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. And this was a promise that God promised to the Israelites uh, Israelites long before Peter's day. He had said, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And here, Peter's saying, you, Christian believers, are now those things. Note, Israel didn't obey, fully obey God, far from it, and yet God fulfilled the promise through Jesus. Jesus obeyed God fully, therefore we get to be the benefactors of that. We get to be the kingdom of priests, the holy nation, the treasured possession of God. And that's all built on Jesus, the cornerstone. Well, that sounds nice, doesn't it? But what does it mean? Well, here's the thing. Did you notice how plural um, Paul's language is? I know that's not good grammar, but you know what I mean? He says, you are a people, a priesthood, a nation, a people, a people. Um, Over the last 10 years, I've spent a lot of time up in the Northern Territory in a a little um, Indigenous community there on the border of Arnhem Land. And one of the languages they speak is Creole. And in Creole, the word for a plural is yumbala, for two people, and yumob, for three or more. So I looked this up in the Creole Bible, and in that part, it's yumob, ten times. Um, In some places, they would say use or yaal. We're not generally good at mob thinking in our culture, are we? We're much more individualistic. 
In other cultures, um, like that Indigenous culture, the priority of the group is valued more highly than the priority of the individual. And that seems to be um, uh, how it is in God's priority, priorities here too. But our individualistic culture betrays a deep need for longing. About five years ago, um, I was a school mum with um, kids at the local primary school and there was a group of um, seven or eight mums who sort of gravitated towards each other and formed a group and they'd do everything together and they'd save each other's seats at the events and um, they'd go out for lunches and dinners and la la la. And um, they didn't actively exclude any of the other mums but they didn't include them either. A problem with 40 mums in their 40s, 30s? Yes, absolutely. Um, I used to have mums come and confide in me in tears because they felt so left out. They felt so rejected. They felt like they weren't good enough. There were a couple of mums who stopped even coming into the school playground because of the power of those feelings that they had, the power of being left out. Belonging is so powerful. And I'm not saying that this can't happen in a Christian community. It can. But it's not supposed to. It's a betrayal of who we are. It's a, it's, it's a physical expression that is a betrayal of a spiritual reality. You, you mob, all belong. You each belong here. And the community you belong to is a royal priesthood. That's a big claim. But in the Old Testament, the priest was the intercessor between God and people. There was one tribe out of the 12 who, who were the priests. They were the priesthood. And, but now, Peter says, you're all priests, all believers. No Christian has more access to God than another, even the ministers. Um, every believer has a hotline to God. Now, you might have heard um, on the subject of royal, some Pentecostal churches describing the Christian women as princesses. Have you heard that? Princesses? I have lots of times. Um, and I've also heard another denomination saying, that's no good, they're not princesses, we're not princesses, we're worms. Well, I don't know. But what I do know is that the Bible says that Christians are a royal priesthood. And I looked this up. I looked up the word royal in my Greek Bible, and there I found the word for royal is princesses. No, I'm just kidding. Sorry. <laughs> the Greek word that we translate as royal is basileion, which is just related to the kingdom. But, get this, the verb is basileos, meaning suitable for the king. So, where people who belong to a kingdom, God's the king, and we are suitable to be in his presence. Why? Because we've been made suitable by Jesus. You are royal, suitable for God. Do you believe this? Is this how you see yourself? You think, I don't know the Bible very well. Well, you're still suitable. Sin in your life? 
still suitable for God. Of course there's sin. Overwhelmed by problems, still suitable. There's shame that you can't forget, suitable. PhD in theology, suitable. You're suitable because although God knows everything about you and he calls you, yes, to stop sinning, your bad is covered by Jesus' good and your good is Jesus' delight. If you have the sense that you or someone else in your church is not quite up to scratch, then hear this. There are no bit part Christians in this new community. We all have a place. We all belong. We're all royalty, although that fades into insignificance in the light of God's glorious royalty. And so we treat one another as royal. We treat one another as precious, acceptable, suitable. And the more we treat one another like that, the more we see ourselves like that and the more we behave like that. It's only logical. If we want to align ourselves with Jesus, we accept the absolute truth that each in the community of God's people belongs and has significance and those things are absolutely secure. I'm no psychologist, but that seems to tick a lot of boxes in the Um, on the spectrum of human needs, doesn't it? We must treat one another in light of this. No excuses. Let's be unwilling to be distracted from our purpose of declaring God's praises. Now, there's an infinite number of ways we could declare God's praises. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim his work, it says in the Psalms. They're not telling the gospel, are they? They can't talk. But when you look at the sky, when you, when you saw that moon, I don't know if anyone saw it last night, we missed it the last few nights, but there we see a glimpse of who God is. Um, I had coffee with some of the ladies from the Wednesday morning group the other day and um, a couple of them were just sharing how the strength of that little community had supported them through various life circumstances that showed me God at work. No one ever said, praise the Lord, not once, but they were praising the Lord. Letting another driver into the traffic, forgiving someone when they don't deserve it, just smiling, being a church where we genuinely welcome people, all these declare God's praises. Now, um, it might not always go so well and that's okay, This is what happened to me the other day. I was going for a walk. I was thinking about declaring God's praises and I smiled at a lady walking the other direction and she glared at me and so I made even better eye contact and turned up my smile and she kept glaring. And I was thinking, come on, I'm praising the Lord. Can you get with the program here? Um, There could have been something off about my smile. My kids do sometimes say that I I sometimes have a freaky smile. So maybe she was scared. (laughs) Um, A few years ago, I was looking, I was in an art gallery and I was looking at um, one of those beautiful Aboriginal paintings with all the dots. And I was with an Indigenous friend, it was up in Arnhem Land. And I said to her, did, did someone from your mob do this, do, do this painting? 
And she, was, she just stared at me, aghast, absolutely aghast. She went, no, we're not dot, dot people. We're river people. She just couldn't believe that I didn't um, know to what to her was a fundamental truth, that um, sh they're not dot, dot people. Dot, dot people do dot, dot paintings and river people do river paintings. For her, the mob's behaviour, doing the paintings, was inseparable from their identity, river people. Church, let's be who we are. We weren't a people. We hadn't received mercy. We were in the darkness of the tomb. We know what we've come from, don't we? Don't we know that? But we're not worms anymore. Now we're royal. Now we're holy. Now we're precious. Now we're priests. Now we're treasured by God himself. Now we live in the light now we are enough, good enough. This is the truth. This is a present reality. It's a, it's a shadowed reality. It's a reality that is yet to be completely fulfilled, but it is reality. Can you imagine what would happen if every one of the 13,000 churches in this country took that on board? Let it be so here. A transformed community leaning into this new way, living out of it, people who belong, who know our purpose, who are just being who we are. I'd like to do something a little bit different just before we finish and ask you to stand. And um, when we've, when we've, you don't have to join in if, if you feel uncomfortable, that's fine. And I just want us to read out um, the, the last two verses from that passage we had read earlier. And, but we've substituted, on the screen, substituted the yous for we and us. So can we stand and say this together, please? Together. But we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a special possession, that we may declare God's to him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once we had not received, now we are a people. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. Amen.